Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, our King. And God, we think of the Israelites who rejected you as their King, asking for a human to stand where you should have been. But God, we thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, to be our King. May we live in complete reverence and submission to him. May we walk with you in ways that honor you, God. Help us to hear from you in your word now as we talk about our King, the King you installed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, we have been doing a sermon series through the book of Psalms, um, and I want to transition now into a sermon series in which we're going to look at Christmas. Um, and we're going to do that by marrying those two ideas together, and we are going to look at the king from Psalm 2. So it's, uh, it's both a psalm, and it will, will prepare our hearts, hopefully, further prepare our hearts uh, for this Christmas season as we rejoice in Jesus Christ, our king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I want to read Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now one of the interesting things to think about as we look at Psalm 2 is to ask the question, who is this psalm talking about? Now from our perspective, it's pretty easy to see that it's talking about Jesus. But we have the benefit of hindsight, of course. For the Israelites who first read Psalm 2, perhaps they thought... Or, or hoped that it would be talking about their human king, their earthly king that they already had in place. But as you read Psalm 2, you just notice that the language here is far too high for any earthly king. Let me use an illustration here. If I were to tell you about the greatest basketball player in the world, somebody who can do it all, he can score from inside, he can score from outside, he can dribble, he can shoot, he can pass, he can guard anybody on the floor, and nobody can guard him. You would not expect to find that player playing regularly at noon ball at the YMCA. <laughs> you would not expect to see me guarding him either. <laughs> the language here in Psalm 2, similarly, is far too high for any mere earthly king. This psalm builds on some of the Old Testament prophecies that we've already seen, so it adds some more color to who the coming Messiah would be. But then there's other, one other really interesting thing that's going on in this psalm. There's rebellion against that king. So we see a great king, and we also see rebellion against him. 
And before we jump into our verse-by-verse look at Psalm 2, I just want to frame it by helping you understand that this psalm is about the king that God has installed and about how we should not join in rebellion against him. This psalm falls neatly into four sections. Each section is three verses long, so we're going to go through it in those four sections. And I want to reread each section as we do it. Sometimes when I preach, I like to read scripture and then reread scripture. I guess it just kind of goes with one of my preaching mottos that I like to hide behind God's word when I preach. So we're going to do that today. And I want to start off by rereading then verses one through three. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. So here's where we see this rebellion. It almost sounds like a coup attempt. The people gather together, and they conspire against the king. You can see it happening maybe in a dark room somewhere. Maybe they're smoking cigars. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> Let me just point out to you that this is very normal human behavior. And the reason I say that is because we all have an authority problem. Every single one of us. Let's let's think about our authority problem for a moment. We often bristle against people in charge. Let's start off by, kids, I'm going to pick on you first, okay? We're going to pick on the adults later. But kids, God has told you to obey your parents. Do you always do that? Do you kids always perfectly obey everything that your parents tell you? Or you think about it at school as well. Your teacher gives you an assignment. Do you always, always do it to the best of your ability to honor your teacher and to honor your Lord? Now, I remember being a kid, and I remember not doing those things the way that I should have. But this isn't just for kids, right? It's for us adults as well. Uh, One way that we could think about it is think about your boss. And, And maybe you have a great relationship with your boss, but maybe sometimes he or she asks you to do something and you don't agree with them on how urgent it is. And they might remind you how urgent it is and they might want to make you do it even less than you wanted to do it before. There's lots of other examples we could give. We could talk about our poor attitude towards law enforcement. We could talk about the way we treat referees. Just think about referees for a moment. Do they come into the game wanting to make it go poorly for us? No, but isn't that how we view them sometimes? They, they have a position of authority and we despise it sometimes. There's so many other examples of this in which we humans do not respect our authorities. And do you ever wonder where that comes from? It all stems from our disobedience toward God. It started with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And ever since then, we humans have been rebelling against authority as part of our rebellion against God. So whether it's outright rebellion against God, the people who would say that they hate him, or whether it's our passive-aggressive, we don't exactly always want to do what he says that we should do, and we don't always want to treat people with the respect that they deserve, that God tells us that we should give to them. You see, we like to set our own course in life, and all too often that means for us that we like to pretend that we are in charge. That's one of the things that I like to remind you of repeatedly here, because I like to remind myself, and it's good for all of us to remember, that we kind of like to think that we are the king or the queen of our own life. And just like in verse 3, we might feel like God has placed chains or fetters on us, and that we want to break free. And as I was looking at verse 3 this week, my thought was this, really? Do we really think that God has chained us? That that God's 
purpose in our lives is to keep us down, to, to squash our fun? And do we, really, do we really think that if we were to get free of his rule in our lives, that it would lead to satisfaction? The Bible is very clear, and we see evidence of it all around us, that if we try to get free of God's control, we become slaves to sin, and it does not lead to anything of lasting value. Yet, it's human nature for us to want to do that. I'm not saying it's right for us to do that. I'm saying that it's human nature for us to want to rebel, even to rebel against God and his ways. And look specifically who this rebellion is against. In verse 2, it says, against his anointed one. That phrase, anointed one, comes from a Hebrew word that sounds like the word Messiah. It's from where we get our word Messiah, which also means Christ. In the Old Testament, the anointed one referred to the one God had installed as a leader, and it came specifically to refer to the one God promised that he would send, to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ, his son. So obviously then again here, we're talking about not just a king, but the king. That's why my sermon title is The King. This is about Jesus Christ. And on that note, I want to fast forward to the New Testament. Psalm 2 is is quoted or mentioned a lot of places in the New Testament. And one of the ways it's quoted is in Acts 4, 27 through 28. So this is not long after Jesus' crucifixion. And the apostles are sharing the word of God, and a couple of them get arrested and put in jail. And, and then they get released. And as they have a kind of quiet moment to themselves to, to think about what's going on, they remember what Psalm 2 said. And they actually quote Psalm 2, where the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord. The persecution that they were facing, they knew that it was persecution against God and against his anointed one, Jesus Christ. A similar persecution, although not nearly as bad, is what happened to Jesus when they nailed him on the cross. So Jesus was killed by rebels. And when you think about it, every single act of our sin is an act of rebellion against God. Yet Jesus came to die for the very rebels who rebelled against him. Now that's amazing love right there. He died for the very people in rebellion against him. Now again, it's human nature for us to be in rebellion against authority. But as we go on from here in Psalm 2, let's recognize that that's not where we should be not in rebellion. So I want to read now verses 4 through 6. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. How does God respond to all this rebellion? Well, his first reaction is to laugh at the people in rebellion. And I, I just always think this is kind of funny. Let me use an illustration here. It's like, Parents, let's say uh, you're disciplining your child and nothing else has worked, so you finally decide you're going to send your kid to bed early and it's, it's just night-night time. Maybe it's like two hours before bedtime, but sorry, kid, you're done. Get your pajamas on, we're turning off the light, you're done. And the kid says to you, fine, I'll put my pajamas on, I'll go to bed, you can turn the light off, but I'm just going to lay here awake all night long. And, and we parents are like, go ahead. <laughs> I don't think so. God knows that any rebellion against him is futile. It cannot succeed. 
But then we also see the serious nature of this rebellion against God in verse 5, where he talk, it talks about his anger and his wrath. There is judgment for those who rebel against God. And this is one of the best reasons that we shouldn't rebel against God, is because God is very clear that there is a day set aside in which God will judge everyone who has ever walked the face of this earth. And we do not want to be on the wrong side of that judgment. So in light of that fact, we shouldn't join in with the rebels now. And then I love verse 6, where, where God says that he has installed his king. He has installed his king. The people that have spoken in Psalm 2, they don't want to be under the control of God. Nevertheless, God has installed his king. Now, this reminds me of what I call one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. In fact, I'll, I'll be willing to give out candy bars if anybody can tell me. There's two places in the Old Testament. Josh, you can't answer it. Sorry. We'll get you something later. But um, there's two places in the Old Testament. It's the same passage. It's just in two different places in which God gave a promise to King David that one of David's descendants would be on the throne forever. Does anybody know? There's two passages. Anybody know them? What was that? Psalm? Not, not Isaiah, not Psalm. Okay, we, we'll do a process of elimination here. There's only 37 books left. <laughs> Pardon? John the second? No, no, good, good guess. Samuel, yes. Which one? First or second? Second Samuel. Which, which chapter? <laughs> seven, yes. Good, good. Okay, second Samuel seven. Okay. And there's another chapter. Anybody know that one? The, the parallel passage to 2 Samuel 7. 1 Chronicles 17. Um, okay, so I, I say it somewhat jokingly. Chloe, I will give you a candy bar for that. That's good. What? A joint effort with your mom? All right, you two can get the two candy bars. A Twix. Yeah, maybe. I've got Nestle Crunch. Sorry. Um, Really, though, those are passages in the Old Testament you should know. Okay, So um, either 2 Samuel 7 or 1 Chronicles 17, so important as we look at God's unfolding plan of what he would do to bring his king to the throne. And the promise in there, I want to highlight the word forever in that prophecy, that God would bring a forever king. Now, I guess there's two ways you could go about having a king forever. One would be to have a king and then to put his son on the throne and then his grandson and then his great-grandson and all the way on down the line. But that's not the way that God chose to do it. Instead, God chose to do it by placing one descendant on the throne who would live forever and therefore reign forever. So that's who we're talking about here in Psalm 2 when it talks about God installing his king. It's the forever king that had already been prophesied in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. So we know that God has installed Jesus as the forever king. And near the end of the Bible in Revelation, we see that Jesus is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So getting back to Psalm 2, you can see the foolishness of rebelling against that kind of a king. Again, in our rebellion, we pretend to be the king or the queen of our own lives. May we not persist in that rebellion. So let's move on to the third section now, verses 7 through 9. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So we're learning what kind of king Jesus would be. Now... Um, 
let's start with verse 7. And that verse is theologically loaded. So let, let's do a little bit of theology here. What does it mean when God says, You are my son, today I have become your father? I don't think that this verse is talking about Jesus coming into existence because standard Christian theology states that Jesus has always existed as part of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always existed in a loving and perfect unity. Uh, so I don't think that we should look at, this, at verse 7 and, and picture it as a time when Jesus was, was given birth uh, in eternity past. Uh, I think that this is talking more about the kind of relationship that Jesus and God the Father have always had. They have always existed in a father-son relationship with, with the, the one difference being that Jesus w was never brought about in that sense of, of being born like we thought. Obviously, he was born uh, 2,000 years ago when he was born on earth, but I, I think what this verse 7 here talks about is the eternal relationship that God the Father and God the Son have always had, always a father-son relationship. Uh, so when the, the word today might be a little confusing in there then, where it says, today I have become your father. Theologians call this the eternal generation of the Son, okay? There's your theology phrase to impress people today, the eternal generation of the Son, meaning that Jesus has eternally existed within a relationship in which it can be described as a father-son relationship, even though he was never born of the Father in, in the sense that we think of a father giving, well, a father bearing a son. Fathers don't give birth, I get that, okay. Um, so this verse is also quote, I mentioned Psalm 2 shows up a lot of times in the New Testament. This verse shows up three times in the New Testament to show that special relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Since Jesus is the Son of God, it is important for us to recognize him as our king and not to rebel against him. So our rebellion against the king would be rebellion against God. It does not please the Father for us to rebel against the Son. Now that should be obvious. Let's move on to verses 8 through 9 then. Again, this is where we see what kind of king Jesus would be. These verses show up in the New Testament specifically. These verses show up in Revelation. So it's interesting for me to see how wide the scope of Psalm 2 is. It, it touches on what we see all the way back in Genesis 3 where we see rebellion. And it goes all the way through to the basically the end of Revelation where we see Jesus as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one who is ruling with an iron scepter. And that rule with the iron scepter is a, a very good thing for his people. It means blessing. It means that, that no one will overpower him. There is no enemy that can stand against him. But at the same time, it's a, a fearful thing for any who would continue in their rebellion against him. They will be dashed to pieces like pottery. But we live in between those times. We live in between the rebellion of Genesis 3 and the perfection of Revelation. We live in a time in which, like the people of Psalm 2, God allows us either to submit to the king or to rebel against him. Although there will come a time where every rebel will be brought into submission to King Jesus, for now, rebels are allowed to rebel, at least to a degree. I'm not saying that we can do any kind of rebellion against God that we want to, because God might squash some of it. But God allows us, in this time, to rebel. And it's part of God's plan. He is completely in charge right now. God is sovereign right now, even over people who are in adamant rebellion against him. Their rebellion doesn't do anything 
to God's sovereignty. He is still in control. God has installed his king. Jesus is king. But right now, as it says in Hebrews 2.8, and I'll, I'll just put that verse up on the screen for you, even though everything is subject to King Jesus right now, we don't always see it that way. So to get, as you look at Hebrews 2.8, uh, God left nothing that is not subject to him, yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. There's a difference between what we perceive and what is the reality. In our rebellion, we might not think that everything is subject to Jesus. We might think that we can get away with stuff. That's not the reality. Everything is subject to Jesus Christ. It's similar to what's said in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, that God has put everything under Jesus' feet. So let me say it this way. We are not in a position of authority over Jesus. That should be obvious. So I want to repeat it again. We are not in a position of authority over Jesus. Yet how many people live as if they were? Or perhaps a better question for us is how often do we live as if we were not under the authority of Jesus? Again, rebellion is a natural part of our human existence. I'm not saying it's a rightful thing that we should do. I'm just saying it comes so naturally to us. We are all tempted to live in rebellion against our king. So what should we do instead? Well, Psalm 2 answers that question for us. You know, um, most of the times when I preach, I like to end with application. I like to tell you what should we do with all of this. Well, Psalm 2 just lays it right out. The last three verses of Psalm 2 give us our application, so I want to walk through them. Verses 10 through 12. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So in verse 10, there's this message for the kings and the rulers of the earth. And we might, at first glance, think that this doesn't refer to us, but I think it does. And I think there's a couple ways. One, it because, is because it gets at where our allegiance lies. Who are we lining ourselves up with? But also, I think it's for us because if we're not going to submit to King Jesus, we're going to pretend to be the king or the queen of our own life. So I think in one sense, in, in that sense, this warning is for us. So there, there's two things here. It says, be wise and be warned. To be wise means we need to recognize that God has installed as king. It is unwise to pretend that, that we or anybody else is king. And then similarly, be warned means, like we talked about earlier in verse 5, that there is wrath and anger and judgment for those who persist in their rebellion against God. So be wise and be warned. Then verse 11 Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. I love the word serve there. That's, uh, maybe some of your translations have the word worship. In the Old Testament, when this word shows up, sometimes it's hard to tell whether it means serve or worship because the ideas are so closely connected together. We, here's one of the ways I like to say it. We can serve the Lord by worshiping him, and we can worship the Lord by serving him. Now, this is kind of a cool thought to me. Some of you are maybe more drawn to the idea of service than to worship. So think about, so we get this picture in our mind, service is doing things like with our hands and feet, and worship is like praising God with our mouths. Some of you might be more drawn to serve the Lord. And what I would like to say to you is, lead us in that. Show us how to serve. Teach us how to serve. 
serve by example and, and help us to learn how to be better servants because as we serve together, we will worship the Lord. And maybe, maybe some of us are weaker in that area and those of you that are drawn to service can lead us in that area. I think I could, uh, well, I'll just speak for myself here, that I, I want those of you that have gifts of service to lead us in the area of service. Teach us how to serve others. But then the flip side is true as well. Some of you might be more drawn to this idea of worshiping God, of praising Him, of rejoicing in Him as our King. And what I would say to you is lead us in that. Teach us how to worship God because as we worship God with our mouths like that, we're offering service to Him. We are giving Him praise and glory. So God has wired us each a little bit differently. He's given us different gifts. Let's use those gifts together to, to serve, to worship, to rejoice together. But then isn't it interesting in verse 11 that we also see these ideas of fear and trembling? How does fear and trembling play into this? Um, sometimes people like to say, oh, no, 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 it doesn't mean fear, it just means reverence. And you know what? <laughs> it does mean fear. And one of the ways we know it, there's lots of ways we know it, but one of the ways we see it here is in the second part of the verse, it says trembling. And do you know what trembling means? It means trembling. So... Fear and trembling. We are to carry around with us a healthy fear of God. And I think what that means is that we should recognize who he is, his holiness, his perfection, in such a way that we would not want to do anything that would put us on the wrong side of him. Now, yes, Romans 8.1 still applies. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So those of us who know Jesus as our Savior and Lord and who are walking with him, we don't have to fear eternal judgment. We don't have to live in dread of that. But we should carry around with us this fear of God that helps us to recognize that there is wrath and anger for those who live in rebellion against him, and we don't want to side with those rebels. So as we serve and worship God, we, we also carry around this, this holy fear of who he is. It helps us to serve him rightly. And again, the way I like to say that is that I don't want to do anything that would put me on the wrong side of God. Let's move on to verse 12. Kiss the son lest he be angry. I think that's a metaphor for our submission. You might think of a movie where there's a king and he's in his robe and he has a ring on his finger maybe and somebody comes in submission to him and kisses the ring. It's an act of reverence to the king. And I think that that's the posture that we should be taking, recognizing that Jesus is our king and our lives are to be lived in humble submission to him never pretending that we have authority over him, but always rejoicing in the fact that he is over us. And again, his wrath is mentioned in this verse. We don't want to be on the wrong side of it. But then it ends by saying, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now this is neat, because in the beginning of Psalm 2, it starts out with people who wanted to be free from God. They, they wanted to, to get away from him. But it tells us at the end of Psalm 2, blessed are those who take refuge in him. The people who are truly blessed are the people who take refuge in God. That's one of the repeated themes in the book of Psalms. Whatever happens in our lives, we can go to God. It's one of the great comforts to me in the book of Psalms. That whatever you are going through right now, I want you to know that you can take that to God and you can take refuge in him. It might mean that you need some humility or some repentance. But, but that door is open for us to come to God 
and to take refuge in him. So just look again at those commands in verses 10 through 12. I'll just flip through them here too. In verse 10, be wise and be warned. Uh, Do any of you need a warning today not to continue in your rebellion against God? Verse 11, serve, rejoice. It carries in there that idea of worship as well. One of the ways that we can uh, apply this idea that Jesus is our king is that we serve him and we worship him. Maybe for some of you that's the takeaway from today's sermon is that you need to, to rejoice more in King Jesus. And then in verse 12, we've got that idea again of kissing the Son, living in submission to Him, and then also taking refuge in Him. Maybe some of you just need to cry out to God, like it says so many times in the Psalms, and He is willing to hear those who come to Him. So here's my big idea for the sermon as we wrap up. We have a king, it's not you. And it's not me either, believe me, I know that. God has set up our king, Jesus Christ, and we should not rebel against him. We should show our allegiance to him. Now, like I said at the beginning, we all have an authority problem, but let me say this to you from my heart. I'm glad that Jesus is king. I am glad that he is king and that I'm not. Now, as I say that, I recognize that I'm in part a hypocrite because I struggle, just like all of you at times, wanting to rule my own life. I have my own thoughts of the way that I want things to go, and sometimes my thoughts are different than God's thoughts, and sometimes I act on those thoughts. So I'm I'm no better than any of you in that. But I also want to stand before you right now and make the commitment that probably many of you want to make in your hearts right now to say to the Lord Jesus again, You are my King. And I know that my life goes better when I live it in submission to King Jesus. We're all tempted to try to live our life the way that we would want to live it, but I think we all know that that life will not lead to more satisfaction than the life lived in submission to King Jesus. So how is your submission to King Jesus right now? Is there any rebellion in your life? One of the things I love about the Psalms is the Psalms teach us if we're in rebellion, go to God in confession and repentance. He will cleanse. He will restore. We can cry out like King David and say, cast me not away from your presence. Uh, renew in me a, what is a right heart. Renew within me a right heart. You see, we're either going to live in submission to King Jesus or in rebellion against him. It's either going to lead to anger and wrath or to blessing as we take refuge in him. Let's not be on the wrong side of this. The people of this world are in non-stop rebellion against King Jesus. There are constant coup attempts against King Jesus. And if we're not careful, we can be swayed by their line of thinking. That's why we constantly need to be reminded that Jesus is king. We have a king. It's not you. Now again, like it says in Hebrews 2, we don't always see it this way. A a big part of our faith means that we wait for that day when it will be plain to see for everybody that Jesus is king and that no rebellion against him can stand. We wait for that by faith. We're told that Jesus is king. We're told that there will be eternal blessings for his followers. We're told that one day he will take care of all evil and make everything new. We wait in faith for that to happen, trusting that Jesus is king and that his way is best. 
please know that God is faithful to keep his promises. Even if it doesn't feel like it to us, Jesus is in charge. He is sovereign. Let's live in submission to him. Let's rejoice in him. Let's follow him all the days of our lives. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have installed your King, our King Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. May we live our lives in complete submission to him, joyfully recognizing that you have installed him as King. So help us to be people who are wise and warned. Help us to be people who serve and rejoice and worship. Help us to submit to the King and to take refuge in you. God, we come before you and we recognize that our best life is the life in which we joyfully recognize Jesus Christ as our King. Help us to live like that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.